The following podcast was recorded in 2021 and released on a separate platform. I see leadership, thought leadership, titles, current events, and technology may have changed and evolved since its original release. Essentially, those conspiracy stereotypes are used to justify the fact that this is a, an existential threat to us. And this is our last stand. This is our last chance to fight against this existential threat to our in-group. The opinions and views expressed in the following podcast do not represent the views of NIU or any other U.S. government entity. They are solely the opinions and views of the speakers. Any mention of organizations, publications, or products not owned or operated by the U.S. government is not a statement of support and does not constitute U.S. government endorsement. Welcome back to the Intelligence Jumpstart Podcast. I am your host, Jane Doe. When do conspiracy theories cease to entertain and become dangerous? I am going to discuss just that with our guest today. Dr. Mikey Biddlestone is a postdoctoral research associate at the Cambridge Social Decision Making Lab. His primary research focus includes the social factors associated with conspiracy beliefs, developing misinformation interventions, and investigating psychological reactions to everyday politics. He has published empirical work on conspiracy beliefs in the COVID-19 pandemic, led a number of theoretical reviews detailing the social processes involved in conspiracy beliefs, and helped to develop a misinformation checklist with the DoubleThink Lab in Taiwan. Dr. Mikey Biddlestone, welcome and thank you so much for being on the Intelligence Jumpstart. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to have a chat about all things misinformation and conspiracy beliefs and things like that. I'm excited and I want to start by asking, what led you to your focus, uh, your research on conspiracy theories and misinformation? I think I've always been interested in things that are that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of in the first place or are not necessarily intuitive to me. And the thing with conspiracy theories in general is that they're quite creative. They kind of create this interesting narrative for stuff that it, it would be really interesting and kind of exciting if it were true. So that's the real appeal of this topic to me. But on a personal level, I've had a couple of friends who have been, I guess you could say, fallen down the rabbit hole in that sense. And mm -hmm. I think at first, sort of implicitly, I, I definitely wanted to understand why they'd gone through that process. And this has actually really helped me understand their experiences and also made me realize, you know, that I can't change their mind myself. I can only really, I don't know, understand and hopefully inform them if they're willing to listen. But yeah, that's the kind of personal level of it as well. It's really interesting. I, I, I like the personal experience that led you to this very fascinating focus. And it's it's very true. It's it's there. It, it is so easy to get swept away, swept down any number of rabbit holes. Mm -hmm. Because when I was getting ready for this discussion today, it's just like, oh my gosh, is that true? <laughs> no, definitely, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, no, I had no idea about some of the stuff it, that's out there. It's kind of scary in some ways and very humorous in others. And I'm just not completely sure how to feel. Yep, but when I, <laughs> when I first started thinking about conspiracy theories, I thought about, you know, Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. But also like, you know, growing up, we watched movies like National Treasure. Mm -hmm. I don't know mm -hmm. if you ever saw that. Uh, where there are all these conspiracies and secret societies, and it's all kinds of adventure. And you know, it's it's, it's very cool stuff. So there are some conspiracy theories that I think 
of as ridiculous and mildly entertaining. I mean, they're entertaining. But in 2019, the FBI identified fringe conspiracy theories as domestic terrorist threat. And that is a big leap from watching Benjamin Franklin Gates run through the Library of Congress and tunnel under the White House. So how would you Mm -hmm. define a conspiracy theory? Yep. Okay. So, I mean, in around the late 90s, I would say uh, there was kind of this agreed upon, I don't know, scholarly definition, if you could call it, of conspiracy theories that are basically these these secretive or small group of secretive powerful actors who behind closed doors act nefariously and plot in secret ways in order to achieve their own selfish goals, basically their own selfish political goals. So that's not necessarily changed currently. But one of the interesting debates at the moment is around well, there's two interesting debates around the kind of mentality or the way that these beliefs form. Also, in terms of the definition, including powerful groups. So if we look at history, of course, there's a lot of examples where people see governments or these kind of new world order type enemies or outgroups that they perceive as very powerful. And therefore, they assume that they have the ability or the the resources to create this kind of global conspiracy. So that does tend to be the sort of general notion of what most conspiracy theories capture. However, There are also a lot of conspiracy theories, especially on the right wing, or maybe extreme right wing, I should say, that tend to target relatively powerless groups as well. These can be ethnic minorities or religious minorities. And these are often capturing ideas that, you know, our society is being infiltrated by these groups who are essentially in real terms underrepresented and have uh, relatively less material resources in order to actually engage or to push a conspiracy in the first place. So in that sense, it's kind of less realistic, even though both have their unrealistic elements to them. Yeah. So I'm curious, is is there a specific schema or profile that we can build or use to identify the types, uh, the sorts of people who believe in conspiracy theories? And I really don't want to profile anyone, but... Um... Sure, that's cool. <laughs> um, yes, there's, there's definitely, there's a, there's a profile and there's kind of caveats to that, right? So the idea that we're kind of tackling with at the moment, which we've made a bit of ground on theoretically, is this distinction between belief in a given or specific conspiracy theory, like uh, JFK was assassinated by the CIA, versus this idea of a conspiracy mentality, which captures this kind of general propensity to perceive the world in conspiracist terms, regardless of what the topic is or what the groups are involved in that. So the idea here is that with specific conspiracy theories, most people are, you know, at least kind of swayed or are suspicious of some circumstances. And that's kind of just a a human condition, right? We we have pattern pattern recognition things in our brain. We and and there are genuine conspiracies that have happened in history, right? So it would be kind of silly to just dismiss all conspiracy theories outright. That being said, people who have what we tend to refer to as a conspiracy mentality, they tend to believe in mutually conflicting conspiracy theories as well. So for example, there's this paper where they looked at whether people would believe in the conspiracy theory that Princess Diana was murdered by the royal family, but also that she faked her own death. And more recent research has basically shown that people who have a conspiracy mentality will believe in both of those conflicting (laughs) things, right? She can't have faked her own death if she's been killed by the royal family. And it's a similar thing with Osama bin Laden conspiracy theories that he was murdered way before mm-hmm. or that he faked his own death. And people will believe both of these conspiracy theories at the same time, right? That is what tends to characterize this propensity to perceive the world in conspiracist terms. It's, it's less based in reflective reasoning or analytical judgments that mean that you kind of check that your logic is consistent and that becomes irrelevant and it's more that everything is a conspiracy. That being said, it depends on how we measure it. Maybe there's some elements of maybe they think that some could be true, but they're not fully true. So there's bits that we need to tackle there in the literature still. But yeah, that distinction is belief in one specific conspiracy theory versus belief in basically all conspiracy theories. Uh, it's, it's so interesting how our minds work. And, and that really makes sense. 
So that kind of made me think of a study that was done by the University of Chicago's Project on Security Threats. And after the January 6th insurrection, they did the study with all the you know arrest, mm-hmm. arrest documents, court documents, to bring together a fairly comprehensive understanding of the people who were arrested and to examine the persistent and ongoing threat posed by actors. And there were some pretty interesting conclusions from this study, such as the population was older than sure. we would mm-hmm. assume it would be. I, I'd like to think that folks who believe and do foolish things as younger they don't have a lot of worldly experience or, you know, they're still naive. But 66% of those arrested were older than 34 years old. Then 85% of them were actually employed and not just employed, but employed as, you know, doctors, lawyers, architects, you know, white, white collar <laughs> professions, right? And, and perhaps the biggest surprise was 89% of those arrested actually had no direct affiliation to the actual militia and fringe groups that were identified as a domestic terrorist threat. Mm-hmm. Okay. These were the folks that appeared to be acting alone or independent or, yeah. mm-hmm. you know, independent of group membership. And there are other, other implications for that. I guess the other kind of result was that they came, they found that a lot of people that attended and came to D.C. were from counties that Biden had won in the 2020 election individuals who felt like they were being mm-hmm. displaced. I don't know if you've ever heard of Great Replacement. It was a commute theory, oh, CIM, you know, yeah. white nationalist. But if, if the population of white adults in those counties that Biden won dropped below 60%, I think they said that they were 18% more likely to send people from the county to the capital on that interesting. day. Interesting, okay. So, I mean, all of that is very interesting because a lot of characteristics, I just wouldn't think of it far as somebody that, you know, would actually believe in conspiracy theory. But then to mobilize with the intent to commit violence. So I guess my question here is how conspiracy theories go from the ridiculous, like you mentioned, Princess Diana faking her own death. And at, at the same time, mm-hmm. she was mm-hmm. killed by the, uh, the royal family to dangerous and violent. How, how does that evolution? I, I don't know what to call it. Mm-hmm. How does this happen? Sure, yeah. So, so I guess kind of what we're describing is like a version of radicalization, right? It's like a conspiracy radicalization. And there's a few elements to that that I was thinking of when, when you're explaining those, those factors. So I think one of the things that's, that's kind of important to mention is that, so I, I think specifically with the January 6th insurrection was that there was a lot of targeted misinformation on social media, right? This has been found in a lot of kind of uh, network analysis on social media analysis and this kind of thing. One of the things that we know is that there's not such conclusive evidence in terms of how age relates to conspiracy beliefs and susceptibility to misinformation in general. However, there is some evidence to suggest that when someone is susceptible to misinformation because of their age, it tends to be explained by the fact that they have less digital media literacy. So the idea there is that if we intervene and, and say, you know, this is, this is how you can detect misinformation online, and this is how, how easy it is to create misinformation online in a very cheap way and for it to be spread very easily that tends to be an element of age, right? And mm. th- there may be this kind of, you know, the idea of technology natives, technology Im- migrants, I think it's called, something like that. But I don't think that explains it enough, really, because what I think that explains is kind of the top-down element of it, right? Which is that we know that certain groups were targeted in those types of pieces of misinformation, disinformation, and, and conspiracy theories. However, there's also this element of why do those stick, right? Why do those conspiracy theories stick or those ideas stick to those people? And like you said, why do they mobilize people? So firstly. Conspiracy stereotypes of groups are sort of used, you know, especially, for example, in Nazi Germany, in order to paint certain outgroups as very highly agentic or competent, but also cold mm-hmm. or, you know, unempathetic. So 
the idea there is those groups are going to be perceived as extremely threatening, but also able to garner the means to engage in some conspiracy or threat against you as, as an in-group, right? So what that does is it, it kind of plays on your, your political affiliations and your political ideology. So that can sometimes be tied to, you know, the certain groups such as often anti-Semitism with conspiracy theories, right? Conspiracy stereotypes of Jewish people tend to be that they are cold and agentic, essentially. But also, in terms of how that leaks into reality, I think that it, essentially those conspiracy stereotypes are used to justify the fact that this is a, an existential threat to us. And this is our last stand. This is our last chance to fight against this existential threat to our in-group. And as you mentioned, the Great Replacement Theory, this is actually a really common sentiment in general in conspiracy beliefs as they form, which is that my group as an existential force or an agentic movement in the world is threatened. And that means that I'm going to be completely wiped out, which is, of course, it plays on my fears that I, I'm going to die. It plays on my th fears that I'm not going to have control over my life or autonomy, any security over my life. I'm never going to be able to have control over any of the, the systems or the, the society that I live in. So basically, all of those things are loads of ingredients that create the situation that means that this is existential fear. Yeah. And the only thing I can do is to fight back against this in a very extreme way as a last stand against the people who are trying to destroy the way we live and who we are, basically. That's the language of these kind of yeah, conspiratorial notions. Oh, and finally, sorry, on that bit that you mentioned uh, in terms of education and their, their kind of socioeconomic status as well. Basically, there's a lot of evidence on, so we call it motivated reasoning in psychology. The idea here is that you can be, yes. you can have the, a very high cognitive ability in certain domains, but if you are motivated to use certain knowledge to protect what you already believe or the groups that you already belong to, you're not going to be looking for the correct information. You're only going to be looking for information that already justifies what you want to believe. So the yeah. idea there is that you can be the smartest person in the world with the highest cognitive ability. If you have a strong identification with, let's say, a certain political party, all you're going to do is use those very high cognitive abilities to bolster or support what you already believe as well. So that's why yeah. that seems conflicting, but it kind of makes sense in, in that way. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true and so interesting. So I'd like to step back for a minute. When we're talking about misinformation, I'd like to clarify how you define misinformation. Because we have like misinformation and, and disinformation. And a lot of times when we're talking about conspiracy theories, I, I would use the term disinformation because it's intentional and it's meant to cause harm. It's, you know, it's a way of causing dissent. Whereas like misinformation is part of being human because sometimes, I don't know if you ever played that game Telephone. You, yep. you know, what, mm -hmm. what message gets at the end of the line is going to be completely <laughs> mm -hmm. different. And it, it's not because of, you know, malice or anything. It's, it's just sure. happens. So how do, you, how do you define misinformation? I'm Manoli Perniotakis, and I use Vice President for Research and Infrastructure. And this is this episode's Manoli Minute. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with John Cohen. He's in the role as the senior official performing the duties of Undersecretary of Intelligence and Analysis and the Counterterrorism Coordinator for the Department of Homeland Security. We'll be talking about domestic extremism and the intelligence challenge. He has a long title for a complicated position, or in his case, two positions, the top DHS intelligence officer, as well as the CT role. The first person to lead DHS intelligence was longtime CIA officer Charlie Allen, who served as assistant secretary before the position was upgraded to undersecretary for intelligence and analysis. In the pantheon of CIA legends, it may be a little controversial to say this, but I think only a little. There are CIA legends, and then there's Charlie Allen. 
and a career spanning many decades that connected him with several complicated national security issues to include the collapse of the Soviet Union and Iran-Contra. He's a, noted as among the best. His service at DHS was a coda in his federal service, but an important one. From its humble beginnings after the creation of the Department of Homeland Security with the passage of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004, DHS Intelligence and Analysis, or INA, as it is commonly known, is now a key part of the contemporary IC and has the important job of working to safeguard the homeland while protecting civil liberties and respecting human rights. Thanks again for listening to Intelligence Jumpstart. For more information on NIU, please visit our website, www.ni-u.edu. So it can basically be any correct piece of information or belief, regardless of whether that's intentional or not, as you, as you mentioned, right? So this can also be sensitive to the time period that it's brought up mm. in. So, you know, one piece of information might be misinformation at first, but then become fact or the other way around, depending on what time period. Interesting. But it can also depend on the kind of context and your understanding of everything, right? So it can be that you're leaving out certain pieces of information and that can be in a manipulative way or by accident. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, the kind of cognitive biases lead us to do that sort of thing where we'll accidentally leave out a certain important topic, which means that we're much more susceptible to misinformation. It may otherwise be kind of harmless, you know. And as you mentioned, yeah, when it becomes disinformation, that's when this kind of, I guess, vagueness or, or grey area of when facts are, are kind of incomplete or slightly incorrect. but have a kernel of truth in them. That's when those are, are mobilized on or strategically used in order to spread disinformation or spread uh, false information, I should say, in order to have some sort of political gain or some, maybe even, even in businesses, they can spread disinformation in order to counter their, their competitors, right? And make them seem illegitimate, that kind of thing in many different contexts. That being said, you know, on top of disinformation, you also have propaganda, which tends to be more of a kind of mobilized or, or streamlined uh, state-sponsored version of disinformation, essentially. Gotcha. So basically Nazi Germany, their campaign against Jewish communities mm -hmm. exactly, across exactly. Europe. Yeah, that would definitely be propaganda because, of course, state-sponsored, yeah. Mm -hmm. Good. Mm -hmm. So I have a couple of questions here, and, and I'm trying to <laughs> zero in on them. Mm -hmm. So because of the First Amendment, people with, you know, some limitations have the right to say what they want to say. Obviously, they can't go into a crowded theater and scream fire. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, purposely like tell somebody that a voting poll has moved so that the person doesn't get a chance to vote and participate in democracy. Those are the things you can't do under the First Amendment. But it does allow people to consume any type of information. Uh, there is no, they have the right to consume information that they want. Like you said, motivated reasoning. They want to find information that kind of fits in with their current belief systems. Sure. Mm -hmm. So is there any, what does accountability look like in this? And I mean, is that something we should even be worried about when we're talking about potential interventions? Yeah, so I, that's a really good question. And I think, honestly, there's not a very clean answer to that. I think in terms of accountability, our knowledge of harm that speech can cause, I should preface this with, you know, this may be slightly my personal opinion, but this is kind of from my experience of conducting research on perceptions of morality and harm and things. Our perceptions of harm and our understanding of what causes harm with our speech updates as time goes on, right? So 
as a society or as some societies, you know, we tend to have this kind of social norm that changes, which is, you know, some language we just all accept is less acceptable to use, yeah. right? So certain racial slurs or things like that. Yeah. That being said, that, that doesn't end there. You know, there, there's still things that we update. There's still harm that we realize is caused, maybe in a kind of indirect mm -hmm. way. And some people might understandably argue that, you know, indirect harm muddies the waters um, in terms of accountability that we're talking about. So I think on, on, that, on that sense, I think it's important to help people understand that there's no end to our perceptions of when we should keep updating these ideas of, of kind of where free speech ends or doesn't end, yeah. right? That being said, that change or progress can really be mobilized by certain groups to argue that this is a slippery slope to policing speech. Yeah. And that is it's a valid concern. You know, people should be attentive and, and concerned about how far these, these laws go and what, what the implications or rules of these laws and rules are. So I think basically the roundabout point I'm trying to get to is this is such a gray area that I'm not sure we should focus necessarily on accountability to counter misinformation or susceptibility to conspiracy theories and stuff. What we need to do is educate people and allow them to be protected against these attempts to sway them in political ways or other ways socially. So while, you know, that is a complicated question, um, I don't think there's a, a clear answer to that. And therefore, we need to focus our efforts on where we know it's going to work, where we know it's going to protect people, which I can go into if you like mm -hmm. in, in a bit about how that might work in terms of, you know, intervening and educating people and helping them to know how to approach things critically, despite the fact that, yeah, they may be very smart, they may accidentally use certain biases and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to hear more about that. I, I think interventions are, like you said, are in education are key. And I'm very curious to hear about your thoughts on certain interventions. Mm -hmm. I don't know activities, processes that have, you know, have had positive results. Sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's actually quite a few interventions that seem to have some supportive evidence for them at the moment. And what we tend to refer to in a general sense is these are inter interventions to reduce susceptibility to misinformation, and in some cases to reduce a willingness to share misinformation as well. So the idea there is that we want to stop the spread of misinformation in general, which includes both of those things, which are your kind of susceptibility and your willingness to share these ideas. So based on kind of lots of different psychological theories in past literature that hasn't ever focused on misinformation, those have sort of been adopted for this kind of updated topic. So one very sort of influential and kind of straightforward thing in psychology is about how we think, right, the, the types of thinking styles we use to understand information. Yeah. So this general idea is that on one side, we have this reflective, analytical, rational thinking style, which motivates us to look for conflicting information to determine whether what we believe is true mm -hmm. or not. Or we have kind of intuitive or automatic or non-reflective thinking processes or styles where we tend to basically not reflect on our thinking and we just kind of go with what our motivations tell us to do. Gotcha. So maybe unsurprisingly, uh, we know that conspiracy beliefs are kind of born out of this intuitive or automatic thinking style as opposed to analytic thinking styles. Ironically, a lot of conspiracy theorists would say they are rational skeptics and things. But regardless, what we find in the research is if you believe conspiracy theories or you're susceptible to misinformation, you tend to rely more on these intuitive thinking styles. Mm, so what scholars have done is they've kind of tried to use this to develop interventions to counter our reliance on intuitive reasoning. One way that they can do this is what they call accuracy nudges, which is before maybe you're sh you decide to share a piece of misinformation on social media, they give you this prompt that says, are you sure? Or do you want to think about this for a second? And that simple prompt basically engages people in their analytic thinking styles. And it's been shown basically to uh, reduce people's susceptibility to misinformation or what we call uh, improve their truth discernment. So they're able to detect the difference between real and fake news a lot more effectively. And also this has downstream effects on the fact that they're less willing to share misinformation online. 
That being said, there's some evidence that this might not be effective across the board. So, for example, for people who are uh, Republican voters or tend to be uh, more conservative ideologically, they are less susceptible to this intervention strategy, meaning that it tends to not influence them, them as much. It doesn't nudge them into being more accurate. So even though that's a very scalable intervention where you could just, you know, have this prompt on social media, just this little window that you click off, it's not necessarily been shown to be super effective. So there are many other versions, which are things like labeling the sources and giving reliability estimates on the sources of the information as well, which have also been suggested to be good. The idea there that's an issue is that you're kind of always catching up with misinformation, right? You're always using the rhetoric of the misinformation. Mm. When you're kind of fact checking or you're debunking information, you're always trying to catch up with the statement and you're always basically legitimizing the language that's used in this misinformation. And what we know is when you present a piece of misinformation and a fact alongside each other, the misinformation essentially cancels out the fact. So basically what you're doing when you're fact checking is you're giving more credence to the misinformation itself. Gotcha. So one possible remedy to this, which some scholars are working on, is this idea of inoculation. So inoculation theory was developed in around the 60s in order to basically understand why and how people are brainwashed, usually in a political sense. So these are kind of what are called like cultural truisms, such as kind of ideological views, things like this, how to kind of unbrainwash them or deprogram them, you could call it in terms of cults. Mm -hmm. So the idea here is that we use a vaccine metaphor. What, what we're doing is we expose you to small doses of misinformation alongside the reason why this is a piece of misinformation and what strategy maybe a, a merchant of doubt is using in order to make you uncertain about something. So an example of this could be that they use kind of uh, logical fallacies like incoherence, like conflicting ideas, and try to kind of glaze over that. They use false dichotomies, they use scapegoating, emotional manipulation, and they tend to try to polarize people. There's lots of examples of this, right? What you can do with inoculation is you present a piece of misinformation and you say, this is misinformation because, for example, what they're trying to do is appeal to your emotions. It's trying to really garner something up in you, which makes you angry or something like that. And they can also kind of make minority views or, or things that are not necessarily mainstream views seem like they are or this kind of silenced majority by kind of giving them false amplification. So what that does is it essentially vaccinates you against future misinformation that you encounter. The benefit of this is that you don't have to catch up constantly with misinformation because it has this kind of general protective element to it. So that being said, there's this issue with the fact that maybe the metaphorical idea of misinformation immunity does wane over time. So after about three to six weeks, the effect of inoculation against misinformation maybe isn't as effective. But extending this vaccine metaphor again, you can give people booster shots of inoculation, mm -hmm. right? The general sense of how we do it at the moment is we get people to play games where they are someone spreading disinformation online. And it's explained to you how this is a piece of disinformation. It's quite difficult to get lots and lots of people in a wide range play these games online. Basically, they take a long time. It requires effort and motivation to do it. So what we're scaling at the moment, which there's some evidence that it might work, is these kind of little 30 second ads on YouTube that can explain to you how inoculation works and how disinformation can sway you and make you susceptible to yeah, disinformation in general. So this seems to be quite a promising avenue um, as a kind of general immunization against misinformation. No, that, that's great. Um, uh... So that's quite a lot of information. There. <laughs> it's a lot of information. Sure where to stop in between. It is a lot of information, but it's incredibly <laughs> complex and so so fascinating. And I think mm -hmm. when you think about like the spread of misinformation and all the legal and political ramifications that surround it all, mm -hmm. the the one question I do have about because you mentioned digital natives or Gen Z earlier, mm -hmm. 
and we have this group, this generation coming up. They've they've been on computers. They've always been. Mm-hmm. They're associated with social media, and they've essentially been exposed to all these messages since birth. So, one of the things that you all mentioned in your research was if if they had already been exposed, then a lot of these interventions would not necessarily be effective. And there also had to be some sort of motivation, like go to the games or whatever, like like you just mentioned. Would it be effective to start some of these interventions at a younger age? Because by the time you get to college, I mean, you pretty much have your own identity and, you know, you've been exposed to your friends, you've been exposed to your parents' sure. belief mm-hmm. systems, and it all plays into this, who you are. But there are also studies that conclude that the political ideology of where you go to school plays, it, it plays a, a bit into who Definitely. you are and developing your belief systems. So would it be effective to even, you know, expose younger age grade school children to some of these games or or do they actually have the cognitive Mm -hmm. capacity to really understand the meaning behind all of it? Yeah, I think it's a really good way to look at it because, you know, of course, yeah, we can all just say, yeah, just in schools, educate kids and that kind of thing. But you're absolutely right. There may be some some cognitive hurdles to that, right, in terms of their development. That being said, I think that that may be a concern that we have for a lot of concepts that we now teach kids that, you know, we've kind of developed ways to make it accessible yeah. to them. So I think on that, you know, we have to be creative, right? Of course, it's, it's easy to say that rather than do it. But I think, you know, there, there are ways to, to speak to people in terms of their generational language or their, their medium, mm-hmm. right? So there, there's, no, there's no research that I'm aware of on this, but, you know, for example, you could maybe use memes to appeal to certain generations that you know are used to, as you mentioned, the kind of social media environment, that kind it of thing. It is creative. Um, uh, thank <laughs> you. Um, not quite off the top of my head. I've been thinking <laughs> about this recently, but yeah, um, you know, because c- it, it sort of. But but I guess you know that, like you said, even the, the younger, even younger generations are going to be having a different medium of of communication, or yeah. you know, TikTok is a relatively new thing, and it's quite a new concept to have that kind of short video bite thing. You could mobilize those short videos to to appeal to them you know mm. in that same space that they they seem to enjoy that kind yeah. of thing but i think with kids in terms of the cognitive element i think you could definitely simplify terms right mm-hmm. so for example you know when i mentioned the different strategies that we make people aware of when we inoculate them against misinformation yeah. you do have to give a definition right i can't just say oh what they they use an ad hominem argument and that means that they're trying to create misinformation around stuff. We have to explain that an ad hominem argument is focusing on the person as opposed to the situation or the arguments. And what that does is it kind of deflects from the actual facts of the situation or the actual important elements of, of what we're talking about in a political discussion. Right? Right, right, right. That can be, I think, simplified probably in, in lots of different ways or in a kind of video format or an implicit way. That means that it kind of goes in with repetitive education and maybe, as you mentioned, games, you know, if we develop games that are kind of simplified as well. Um, I really do think that we can we can train really young kids to understand this stuff, if not build some sort of intuition that they can't necessarily articulate, but they're kind of suspicious of attempted manipulations of their their understanding of the world. Mm. The general idea is that we're basically motivating people to be resistant to persuasion, right? So if we can build that into an educational format in whatever means necessary, I think that would really help in general. Right. So, so that's from a young age. Mm-hmm. So interesting. 
Shifting gears a bit, do you have any ideas or an opinion about how governments should approach disinformation? The U.S. Communications Decency Act, it came about in 1996, I believe, and it hasn't been updated since. And you know, Facebook, well, it's now meta. Mark Zuckerberg and Twitter, they've all appeared before Congress on the Hill. And so there's been a lot of, you know, going back to the accountability, asking questions about what we're doing to protect protect their users. How do we keep people safe while not infringing on their rights? Because I keep thinking about McCarthyism. I don't know if you're, you're familiar with that. So back in the 1950s, a member of Congress targeted those who he believed sub- subscribed to communism. Mm. Mm-hmm. People were being targeted because of their thoughts, their beliefs, and, and, and caused a, it, it caused a lot of harm to the public sure. and challenged our, our constitution. As he, and I, and I know it wasn't just one man, but he seemed to be policing thought and weaponized the accusation to keep his critics under control. At the end of the day, what can we do to take steps to make sure that something like that, something that was very insidious, it doesn't happen again? Just to double check, are you referring to kind of like vilifying certain disadvantaged groups or do you mean the kind of label of that's a conspiracy against me and that being kind of a damaging or gray area or both? Uh, kind of both. So so we have this liberty because of the First Amendment mm-hmm. to say these okay. things, to believe these things. But is there, does the U.S. government or corporate America have a responsibility to get a handle on the what continues to be an elevated problem of disinformation? Or would any yeah. effort mm-hmm. be considered sure, thought policing sure. or I'm considered an official attempt to disenfranchise groups uh, with specific beliefs? I'm not sure if that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I completely understand what you mean. Yeah, thank you for the, the clarification. Yeah, so I think like um, that there's, there's definitely a real danger in being perceived as discriminating against people who identify as kind of rational skeptics or conspiracy theorists, especially in a, in a democracy, right? So. There's this recent paper that I've just submitted with a colleague, Kenzo Nera, and his colleague in Belgium, where basically he was looking at, does perceived discrimination of the conspiracy theorist in-group, right, this identity as a, as a conspiracy theorist, does perceived discrimination against them increase your identif- strength of identification with this group? Mm. Does this make you more set in your ways to call yourself a conspiracy theorist and to be proud of this, this label, right? The idea here is that that's a kind of often a response in discriminated groups in order to deal with feelings of um, low right. self-esteem associated with discrimination and stuff. So what we found was if there's perceived discrimination in society against conspiracy theorists as a group, this doesn't increase their, their identification as a conspiracy theorist. This kind of just doesn't really bother people, right? But if this perceived discrimination comes from politicians or perceived kind of powerful groups, this will strengthen their identification with the conspiracy theorist in-group. And huh, the reason for this is because they perceive more discrimination based on a conspiracy itself which is that the idea of the word conspiracy theory is a conspiracy made up by the CIA in order to delegitimize anyone questioning anything in society. So that's basically a a long-winded way of saying um, we need to be really careful about labeling people conspiracy theorists, especially when it's coming from the government or powerful groups. And there is possibly a way to go about this. And basically, I think what it falls into is this way to communicate information and evidence to the public. So especially with things that are kind of we need this collective effort um, in order to tackle. So things like the COVID-19 pandemic or mm-hmm. strategies to right. tackle climate change as well. Basically, we need the public to be on side, but you can't just say, I'm here to persuade you. This is why you should do what I say, right? Because we know that that doesn't work. People react in a negative way. So 
one way to to go around this is this kind of framework that mm-hmm. some of my colleagues have kind of come up with that we're testing at the moment to basically see is being honest and open about information regardless of whether it's kind of good or bad for the topic right let's take vaccines as an example saying that there are actually some very small instances of harmful effects of vaccines does not actually hurt people's trust in the people who are trying to push vaccines for people to have in the public, right? What it does do is it increases long-term trust in that government agency or the group that are powerful that are pushing these vaccines, right? So one way to go about this is that we call it this PROVE framework. So it's P-R-O-V-E. So the P stands for pre-bunk, which is like the inoculation that we were talking about earlier. Basically, preemptively prepare people, educate them for ideas that might make them resistant to efforts to confuse them or to make them uncertain or to kind of mobilize them in a manipulated way. And the R stands for reliably inform, which is basically instead of trying to persuade the public, trust them that if you give them the right information themselves, they're going to come to the right decision. And if they don't, that's because the information is not certain yet enough, right? That's the idea. And if you have an educated public, that should work, right? Or at least to a certain extent where it's not so damaging. It's a tiny minority, you know, with the misinformation. The O is off a balance, which is, you know, if, you, if there are some uncertainties um, or there's an alternative perspective on something, then you should raise that to show that you're being impartial and that you're not trying to sway on one direction. That being said, you should offer balance when it's appropriate. Right. Because, for example, with climate change, the overwhelming scientific consensus means that it's kind of inappropriate to present balance because the balance isn't supported by scientific evidence. The V stands for verify evidence. That's basically show people how to kind of verify the evidence and and understand whether it's good or uh, worth looking at. You know, for example, sample sizes, the types of experimental manipulations or designs used, that kind of thing. And finally, the E is explain uncertainty or disclose uncertainty. So let people know the areas in which we still need to have information on in order to make a an informed opinion even though you're saying i'm reliably informing you however there's also this stuff that we still need to work out and the jury's out on that essentially so basically the idea here is that even though it might worry people it might make them you know scared the some reality is quite concerning the idea is that you're a powerful group that can mobilize them to support this positive thing in the world and they'll trust you in order to do that right so the point is, you can't just pretend to be trustworthy in order for people to trust you. You have to be trustworthy in the first right, place. Right. I, I really like that. I, I like the long... I like the prove model. <laughs> I, I think I'm gonna yeah. go ahead and it seems take to it. be. It seems to <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Yeah, it seems to not necessarily hurt views, yeah. which is a good thing. You know, it hasn't necessarily made people more likely to you know take vaccines, that kind of thing. But seems to at least for now, yeah, it doesn't make people turned off the idea, which is kind of what we were looking at. Is yeah. People don't react negatively, at least when you're being honest with them, which is promising. Right. That, that is so fantastic. So, Mikey, you've been so generous with your time. You've definitely given me a lot to think about uh, regarding how I or groups I am part of define others. And I, I have sure, yeah. one last question for you, and it's more of a personal interest. And I don't know if you've ever heard of the website Snopes. It's S-N-O-P-E-S. It's Oh, I have, I've heard of this right. before. I've not been on it yet. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a fact-checking sure, sure, yeah. mm-hmm. website, and mm-hmm. folks can check stories, share across social media or, or elsewhere. You go to this website, it tells you if it's true or false. And maybe, <laughs> maybe we don't want to advertise this if there is, but I'm kind of curious to know if there is a database of conspiracy theories out there 
that can tell uh, tell us where it begins the origins and you know how it grown up type of thing because it would be really interesting and educational to see how these theories begin and have evolved. That's so true. Time. That yeah, that would be a really helpful. To, I'm just trying to think if because you know on the on basically I'm on like what academic Twitter is what I tend to call it. You know, so you tend to see a lot of tools that people promote. You know, these kind of online tools, but I'm not sure if I've seen that. I don't think there is a database of mapping mm. conspiracy theories over time. What they tend to do, I think, is they'll look at how one certain conspiracy movement will develop over time. So, for example, there's lots on QAnon on 4chan, yeah. for example, and they basically download all of the data with some metadata saying, you know, when this, when this comment was made, what the kind of words that they were using are to put it in the category, that kind of thing. But I don't think, no, I don't think there is a way to, to really look at conspiracy theories over time. I mean, researchers have looked at examples of mentioning conspiracy mm. theories in certain newspapers and to see whether they kind of increase over time, which they found that they basically fluctuate. They don't necessarily increase. So they fluctuate based on political circumstances. So is there an election? Suddenly conspiracy theories right, right. are mentioned constantly, right? But no, <laughs> unfortunately, I'm, I'm not aware of any, yeah, of any historical... Uh, yeah, I mean, I use Wikipedia for that, basically, yeah, to look at right? the, the oldest ones I can find. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's yeah. great. Um, thank you so much for your time today. Um, this was such a fascinating discussion. No, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, really interesting chat as well. I love talking about this stuff. And yeah, hopefully it gets better in the future. I don't know. <laughs> we're in worrying circumstances, but I think we, we have some promising uh, possible interventions that might be might work for the future, hopefully. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Intelligence Jumpstart podcast. We'd love to hear from you about what you like and what you'd like to hear more of. If you would like to learn more about a specific topic or issue, send us a note at nipress at niu.odni.gov. To learn more about NIU, visit our website at ni-u.edu.